Okay. Hello, everybody. You, you can hear me okay? Um, it's such a pleasure to be here. Uh, once upon a time, I lived in Cambridge, right when Cambridge Insight uh, Meditation Center was being started. Uh, Larry Rosenberg uh, was uh, very important to me at that time. Um, so I'm delighted that uh, I can be there, at least in a virtual way, uh, with you all this evening. Um, uh, as you heard already, the uh, um, ostensible uh, uh, reason for this is the publication of this new book of mine, The Zen of Therapy, Uncovering a Hidden Kindness in Life. Um, so it just came out a week ago. Uh, I'm just starting to talk about it. So uh, my idea for this evening uh, is as follows. I thought, uh, for those of you who are not so familiar with me and my work, I would talk a little bit about uh, uh, where I'm coming from and how I got here and, uh, and whatnot. Uh, and then um, I'd like to read you some sections of the book, just a few, a few short sections to give you a, a feel for it. And, uh, and then I thought we could um, take some questions uh, I could intersperse the reading with some questions. I'll sort of see how it feels. Um, I think we have until, um, what time? Until 8.30 or 8.45? 8.45, okay. Um, so for those of you who are not familiar with my work, uh, I'm a psychiatrist which means I went to medical school um, and, and I can prescribe medicines and so on. Uh, but most of what I do uh, on a day-by-day, week-by-week basis is um, uh, uh, individual psychotherapy. Uh, I'm not a psychoanalyst, although I was trained by uh, a number of uh, uh, very, um, very smart, very accomplished, very caring psychoanalysts. Um, first uh, in my medical school days at Harvard and then during my residency, um, which was in New York at Cornell under a, a, um, a fairly well-known psychoanalyst named Otto Kernberg. Um, but the uh, rather unique thing about my experience was that um, uh, as, uh, as you already heard, um, when I was still quite young, uh, still in college, but, you know, 20, 21 years old, I was fortunate enough to meet uh, Jack Kornfield, uh, Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg, Ramdas, uh, the whole uh, whole coterie of uh, uh, mostly Western uh, spiritual teachers, teachers of Eastern wisdom, Buddhism, some Hinduism, like like Ramdas, um, and I uh, immersed myself as as much as I was able in uh, uh, in my twenties in the study of insight meditation and, and uh, vipassana in particular. Uh, I spent uh, a number of summers uh, out at Naropa Institute when it was first beginning, uh, and I sat a number of uh, silent two-week uh, Vipassana retreats, the first ones that uh, Joseph, Jack, Sharon, uh, a number of other teachers um, were teaching together on the East Coast, even before they founded the Insight Meditation Center in Barrie, where I imagine a, a number of you have been. Um, and I've, uh, I took an 11 year break when I got married and we had children and, and didn't go on any retreats. And then after uh, 11 years started to go back. Uh, by that time they had built the forest refuge uh, as a, um, 
uh, a place for long-term practice for people who, who uh, pretended that they knew what they were doing in the meditation. And I would try to go there every year, at least um, for the past however many number of years that's been. Um, so, so I was quite um, uh, immersed in, in the Buddhist world as much as I was able to be before deciding to um, go to medical school, uh, which I did with the idea of becoming a psychiatrist. And I think I was one of only maybe two, possibly three people in the medical school class who uh, were there with that intention. So uh, I had that pretty much to myself. Uh, and uh, um, because of the meditation experience and, and uh, the study that I had done of Buddhist psychology, I approached most of what I was learning from the Western psychoanalytic, psychodynamic side uh, with an eye to um, seeing it through the prism already of Buddhist psychology and with an eye to uh, trying to understand how the two disciplines at first seemingly so different uh, actually lined up together, how they were congruent, how they could help each other, how they could complement each other. And uh, a number of those early books that, um, that you heard the titles of were uh, basically my attempts in my own mind to translate uh, the uh, uh, psychology of Buddhism into the Western psychodynamic, psychoanalytic language that uh, most of us, even if we're not devotees of Freud, that, that most of us uh, think about the mind with. Um, so uh, while I, I never learned Sanskrit or Tibetan or Pali or anything, but um, uh, my, my idea was to try to explicate uh, what I was picking up from the Buddhist side and feeling relevant in my own work as a psychotherapist. Um, uh, trying to translate or interpret the, a, a Buddhism for a Western audience. Um, and part of that was, uh, as I found my own voice in the writing, because I started out writing very theoretically, I, I wrote early papers in uh, a, 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 an obscure journal called the California Journal called the uh, Journal of Transpersonal Psychology. And I wrote a number of uh, early, very theoretical papers on uh, um, uh, the transformations of narcissism and meditation and ego and egolessness in uh, Buddhist psychology and emptiness uh, is, is the emptiness of uh, the borderline personality the same or different as the emptiness of uh, 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 Buddhist psychology. Uh, anyway, as I became more comfortable with my own writing voice, uh, I started in those earlier books to try to try to write from inside of my own experience, especially my experience being on retreat, um, because I wanted to, to try to bring that, um, uh, that very uh, moving and intense and helpful experience. Uh, uh, I, uh, I wanted to put language on it for people to, uh, in a way, make it seem like it was something that they could do also. So I, I wrote, uh, you know, it, trying to find uh, what it is that happens in those retreats that are, that's actually um, uh, potentially transformative or uh, moving or what, what did I actually remember from the two weeks of silent retreat. Uh, so I, I, I became interested in trying to capture those little moments. And I, 
uh, those of you who have read my books might remember I, I wrote once about um, uh, finishing a two-week retreat in Barrie and coming out in the early morning when it was snowing very hard and um, finding my car and unlocking the car and taking the snow brush out very all very mindfully and um, uh, turning on the lights and turning on the windshield wipers and turning on the defroster and turning on the heat and getting you know the whole thing like a dance and then getting out of the car to get the snow off the windows and um, pushing the electric lock the door button so that uh, I very mindfully locked myself out of my own car and uh, then had to trudge up to the meditation center and find the maintenance man uh, who uh, I hoped would have one of those key, one of those, um, you know, coat hanger things that could uh, sneak inside the locked door and open the car up for me. Um, and uh, 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 I assumed he had had that experience before with yogis coming out of the retreat. And he sort of shook his head at me and said, uh, no, I can't uh, can't say I've ever had this experience. Um, but I, I wrote about how my mind, uh, while I had thought, you know, I could do anything uh, coming out of the retreat, that my mind was actually settled enough that I didn't beat myself up for making this mistake. And that that was one of the gifts of the meditation retreat. So um, there, I have various stories like that, that, that um, I could take up uh, all of our time with. But... Um, the question that uh, started to come to me uh, with the first book, which was Thoughts Without a Thinker, and then all the way through for the past 25 years, basically, um, the most common question was always, well, how do you as a therapist, because really most of what I do is, you know, one-on-one, face-to-face, before COVID, uh, uh, in the room, psychotherapy. And I only wrote uh, one day a week. I, I tried to keep one day a week free of patients to write all these books in. Um, so the question that kept coming was, well, how do you actually integrate your Buddhist leanings, your Buddhist background with the psychotherapy work that you do? Do you teach your patients to meditate? Do you sit like we just sat, those of you who were here for this, do you sit with them for 45 minutes or for 10 minutes? Or you know, do you give meditation instruction? And I, and I would get impatient with those questions because no, that, uh, that's not what I saw the integration to be. I, I'm just a therapist when I'm a therapist and I'm trying to help the people as best I can. You know, therapy is like a creative improvisatory thing as far as I'm concerned. And the, the therapist myself in this case is always sort of adjusting to the needs of the patient. So I'm different, I would say, with, in different situations with different patients. But to the extent that meditation, mindfulness, Vipassana, Buddhism has made a difference in, in my life and therefore in my being, in my personhood, it must be infiltrating the therapy in some way. So uh, for a long time, I sort of evaded the, trying to describe how that, how that happens or what form that takes. But for this book that, that I wanna to talk to you about this evening, I set myself the task of, okay, you're old enough now, you've been doing this for long enough, you're in your mid sixties, um, you don't have to be evading the question all the time. How do you actually bring the Buddhist uh, influence into the therapy work? 
you know, and it's obviously, I think it's much more subtle, it's much more nuanced, it, uh, but, um, uh, you know, could I try to put my finger on it uh, in, in more specific ways? Could I actually describe it in my writing time? So I wasn't sure. And uh, to begin with, I set myself the task of <clears throat> basically recording, not tape recording, but um, uh, writing down after, uh, after a session, uh, at least one session a week in which I thought something interesting happened that had a bit of the spiritual whatever uh, coming into the session. You know, maybe I did actually teach meditation to someone, or maybe we talked about it, or maybe it was a Dharma student who was also in therapy, or more often it was a regular therapy session, but whatever my Buddhist background, you know, whatever was going on in the back of my mind was affecting what I was saying or doing, uh, I decided I would try to capture that. Uh, and the capturing of it was a kind of anti-Buddhist uh, uh, move because really it, uh, my approach to therapy had always been not writing down a lot of process notes, allowing the sessions to unfold as they did and to come and go and trusting that what needed to emerge in the present moment would emerge and that I would remember what I needed to remember, um, but that I could let it go. But so this was sort of the opposite. So for a year, I had to kind of force myself, but I did force myself to randomly, it's pretty randomly choose one session among the many, you know, 30, 40 sessions a week that I was having, um, choose one, write it down quickly after the session ended. And then during my writing time, uh, you know, in the following week, basically, uh, try to write the session up as closely as possible to how it unfolded, but with some kind of, you know, literary something, you know, so it wouldn't just be totally boring. Um, and so I did that for a year, uh, didn't read them over, just like made myself, you know, collect the sessions. And they were, it, so they became like a mosaic or a kale kaleidoscopic view of, uh, there are a couple of patients whose sessions uh, I kept picking. So there are some people who recur, but basically it's all different people. And um, uh, after the year had passed, I started to look the sessions over and I thought, oh, maybe, maybe there really is something here that I could use as the nucleus of a, of a book, but I'm not sure how to proceed. Um, so I took them all, I showed them to my editor who's done the past two books with me, the um, a Trauma of Everyday Life and Advice Not Given. And she's a wonderful editor at Penguin Press who I really trust and who uh, has a very light touch, but whatever she says, I always think she's right and I listen to. And she read it, she read a lot of the material over and said, uh, you know, it, it's interesting. I think, I think there's something here, but uh, the only real through line is you, because, you know, the patients are all uh, changing. So what we really are gonna wanna hear is more from you about, um, uh, what's going on, you know, what are you really thinking about? What are you, what's going on in your mind as these sessions are going on? Um, and so uh, she suggested that I try to write a reflection or a commentary or, you know, something more 
uh, uh, revealing from my side uh, after report, the report of each session. So the, uh, the year's worth of sessions happened to end just before COVID hit. So it was the, you know, the end of 2018 and then all through 2019. And by the time a year went by, I'd had enough and I, and I said I was gonna stop. Um, so it turned out to be a record of the last uh, year of face-to-face -face psychotherapy in my office in lower Manhattan, uh, little did I know. But then, but then I had the, the first year of COVID basically when I was uh, up here in Woodstock, New York, where I'm talking to you from. And I had a little more writing time because there was nothing else to do. Um, and um, I started to go through the sessions and to write my commentaries, write my reflections, really to think about what was going on in those sessions and to try to uh, pull out, to try to extract uh, what the, uh, you know, uh, what the Buddhist uh, elements uh, might have been. Um, and as I was doing that, I started to think of each session, each, you know, like little session, which is just like one hour of some, an, an ordinary life event and, you know, an ordinary hour of therapy. I started to think of each one as a kind of, Japanese or Zen haiku, you know, or uh, or koan, you know, in which the in the the Zen poems, like uh, you know, a little aspect of nature is, is so closely observed and then written about, and then it then that little tiny uh, uh, um, lens, that little tiny element has so much, so many huge implications, you know, for um, the mind. So I started to see each session as a kind of haiku, as a as a kind of koan, and then and then the idea of the Zen, the Zen of therapy, started to percolate uh, in my mind, and I reached out to a, a good friend of mine, a, a writer named Jonathan Cott, um, who uh, uh, he had once quoted a one of these Zen poems to me uh, while we were. Um, uh, sitting uh, outside in Madison Square Park, uh, observing a theatrical performance that the audience was very focused on. And uh, he leaned over to me and he, and he said, uh, under cherry trees, there are no strangers, which is a famous uh, a Zen poem. And I remembered him doing that. You know, the, everyone, everyone in the audience was so focused, so one-pointedly focused on the drama, on the play that was being performed. And there's this feeling of, you know, conviviality. Uh, so under cherry trees, there are no strangers. Um, so I, I said, well, are there more of those? Where can I find more of those? And he sent me a list of all these books of Zen poetry. So I started reading the Zen poetry while going through the sessions and then interpolating some of the Zen poems. They, the poems all came alive for me. Like they started to describe the therapy sessions. So, um, so that's a lot of background on the book, uh, just so you understand where I'm coming from. So, um, uh, I ended up grouping the sessions according to the four seasons. So uh, um, fall, winter, spring, summer. And then, uh, and then my idea was to um, uh, take those four groupings 
and um, use the traditional Vipassana insight meditation path of insight, you know, clinging, mindfulness, insight, and compassion to, to use those four kind of stages uh, to uh, tie those to the four seasons and then, um, you know, group, this, group the uh, therapy sessions that way. Um, but the fourth, um, the, the, the fourth series, which was going to be meant to be compassion, uh, turned out to be all about uh, anger and aggression, because uh, uh, in my view, the, the path to cultivating compassion runs through dealing with one's own tendency towards uh, violence uh, and one, one's own anger and aggression. So I retitled the fourth one as aggression and then wrote a final chapter that's called kindness. Um, so that's so that's uh, more the structure of the book. Um, so there's a lot. There are a lot of things running through the book. I want. I wanted, in a way, to honor uh, a number of the uh, uh, teachers, uh, both alive and dead, who had influenced me in my own approach to therapy. So there's a there's a lot in the book about about Ramdas, who I knew when I was young, and then visited again just before he died. There's a fair amount of Winnicott. Uh, who runs through all of my books, although I tried very hard to keep Winnicott out of it until the last part, I almost succeeded. Um, there's a lot of John Cage, the musician John Cage, who was, uh, uh, whose approach to music was um, uh, very much influenced by Buddhism. And uh, his approach to music has uh, described for me very clearly uh, a kind of Buddhist approach to dealing with emotional experience where you're not trying to push away the unpleasant or uh, cling to the uh, melodious sounds, you know, to the pleasant emotions, but you can hear all sound, even the ones that rub you the wrong way. You can hear them all as music. So, and there's a, a there's some of the Dalai Lama running through some bits of Joseph running through. Um, so, um, uh, it's a textured, I think it's a, the book is kind of woven together out of the patient sessions and then uh, what it's like really to be a therapist and a meditator and then all these other influences. So um, I thought I would read a few things from it while, while we still have time. Um, okay, so I'd like to start with a poem. Um, I think you'll understand if you if you uh, if you don't mind listening to the whole poem. It's a poem by D. H. Lawrence that's called "Snake," that um, that I use in the beginning of the book, in the first, maybe in the second chapter. This poem appears, and um, I think it's pretty self-evident what the poem, why why this poem is so important to me. I, it's not one that I knew before I was writing the book. A patient of mine. Um, when I was talking about what 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 was uh, what I was working on, uh, said, "Oh, do you know this poem? I studied it in like seventh grade or something, and uh, I never studied it anywhere. Uh, but when I read it, I was like, you know, I thought it was the perfect thing. So let me read it to you. Snake. A snake came to my water trough on a hot, hot day. And I in pajamas for the heat to drink there. In the deep, strange scented shade of the great dark carob tree, I came down the steps with my pitcher and must wait 
must stand and wait, for there he was at the trough before me. He reached down from a fissure in the earth wall in the gloom and trailed his yellow-brown slackness, soft belly down over the edge of the stone trough and rested his throat upon the stone bottom. And where the water had dripped from the tap in a small clearness, he sipped with his straight mouth, softly drank through his straight gums into his slack, long body, silently. Someone was before me at my water trough and I like a second comer waiting. He lifted his head from his drinking as cattle do and looked at me vaguely as drinking cattle do and flickered his two forked tongue from his lips and mused a moment and stooped and drank a little more being earth brown, earth golden from the burning bowels of the earth on the day of Sicilian July with Etna smoking. The voice of my education said to me, he must be killed for in Sicily, the black, black snakes are innocent. The gold are venomous. And voices in me said, if you were a man, you would take a stick and break him now and finish him off. But must I confess how I liked him? How glad I was he had come like a guest in quiet to drink at my water trough and depart peaceful pacified and thankless into the burning bowels of the earth. Was it cowardice that I dared not kill him? Was it perversity that I longed to talk to him? Was it humility to feel so honored? I felt so honored. And yet those voices, if you were not afraid, you would kill him. And truly I was afraid, I was most afraid, but even so honored still more that he should seek my hospitality from out the dark door of the secret earth. He drank enough and lifted his head dreamily as one who has drunken and flickered his tongue like a forked night on the air, so black, seeming to lick his lips and looked around like a god, unseeing into the air and slowly turned his head and slowly, very slowly, as if thrice a dream, proceeded to draw his slow length curving round and climb again the broken bank of my wall face. And as he put his head into that dreadful hole, and as he slowly drew up, snake easing his shoulders and entered further, a sort of horror, a sort of protest against his withdrawing into that hard black hole, deliberately going into the blackness and slowly drawing himself after, overcame me now his back was turned. I looked round, I put down my pitcher, I picked up a clumsy log and threw it at the water trough with a clatter. I think it did not hit him, but suddenly that part of him that was left behind convulsed in undignified haste, writhed like lightning and was gone into the black hole, the earth-lipped fissure in the wall front, at which in the intense still noon, I stared with fascination. And immediately I regretted it. I thought, how paltry, how vulgar, what a mean act. I despised myself and the voices of my accursed human education. And I thought of the albatross and I wished he would come back my snake for he seemed to me again like a king like a king in exile, 
uncrowned in the underworld, now due to be crowned again. And so I missed my chance with one of the lords of life, and I have something to expiate, a pettiness. Okay, so that's D.H. Lawrence 100 years ago in Sicily. Um, but for me, I mean, the snake, so we all like the snake in psychoanalysis, uh, the snake in our dreams, the snake in Buddhist uh, psychology, you know, protecting the Buddha uh, while he's, while he's uh, achieving his enlightenment. Um, the snake in the Kundalini, the snake rising up the spine, the, the, um, those aspects of us that we fear, but that uh, are also like one of the lords of life, you know, the uncrowned, uncrowned kings of the underworld. Um, those aspects that we might use meditation to try to rise above, uh, or that we might use uh, psychotherapy or psychoanalysis to try to subdue or conquer. Um, I prefer, and I, I, I use this phrase in the book later in the book, um, what, what's the point of all this? You know, what, why, how do therapy and meditation work together? What, what's the outcome that we're looking for? To become partners with the capacities that constitute us. That's a, a phrase from a, a friend, a colleague of mine, Michael Eigen, psychoanalyst in New York. Uh, partners with the capacities that constitute us, you know. Uh, so no longer dissociating ourselves and uh, breaking ourselves up into parts, you know, and uh, uh, feeding one and uh, pushing pushing another one away. Um, so that motif, I'm, I, you know, uh, I think is running through the book. Um, so because we're insight meditation, Cambridge insight meditation, I thought I would read you from first from the beginning of the section on insight. So again, the way the book is structured, it's the year's worth of sessions, but they're broken up into the four seasons. And then at the beginning of each season, so, you know, clinging, uh, mindfulness, insight, and then aggression. At the beginning of each season, under each of those topics, I write a couple of pages as like an introduction to this aspect of the path of insight, basically, or how does the psychotherapy world come, come in line with that. So this is from the summer section. So it's pretty deep into the book. This is the third part of the patient aspects of the book, um, the summer section about insight. And um, I thought I'd read that next. You all still with me, okay? The heart of the Buddha's message is that there is no self. What he meant by that is open to interpretation, and there's been no end to debate about it over the centuries. But however we choose to understand it, there's no question that he was getting at something profound, difficult to comprehend, and central to his teachings. Rather than digging too deeply into the endless academic debates about this core doctrine, where the language of philosophy threatens to overwhelm the felt truth of this bold statement, let's stay close to the actual words. There is no self. How strange. I don't know whether you react the same way as I do, but I actually find this relieving. 
deep down, I've never been sure that I had a self or enough of a self or the right kind of self or that myself was okay or that it was even there. What self? I looked at my parents and they had selves. I looked at my friends and siblings and they had selves. I looked at the other boys in my class and they seemed to have selves and the girls, no question, definitely had selves. But my own self was hard to pin down. There were swirls of thoughts and feelings for sure and certainly a recurrent sense of inadequacy coupled with a wish to please and happiness when I was praised or pride when I was successful at something. But from an early age, I had a nagging kind of doubt when I compared myself with those around me. Not self-doubt as much as doubts about my own completeness. How I seemed from the inside did not match up with how other people appeared from the outside. Was I who I was supposed to be or was I somehow wanting? There wasn't much I could do with this question. I pretty much had to bury it and just pretend. Now that I'm a psychiatrist and have been treating people for 40 years, I know that these kinds of feelings are far from unique. In one form or another, they might even be the norm. Psychotherapists have come up with different explanations for their ubiquity and given the feelings different names, but beneath all of the various theories, the felt insecurity seems remarkably similar. Freud, who uncovered the fact that sexual feelings are present in childhood and often directed at one's parents, saw it mostly in terms of eros. As he explained in the Oedipus Complex, young children are cognizant of their genital inferiority vis-a-vis -vis their grown parents. As consciousness dawns in a four to six-year-old child, he proposed, so does the feeling of inadequacy. The next generation of psychoanalysts was not so content to look solely through a libidinal lens. They focused on the same felt sense of insufficiency, but tied it to even earlier developmental struggles. Some thought that relentless self-criticism, self-loathing and low self-esteem were the result of aggression turned back on oneself. Rage against the self is an attempt to solve a frustrating problem. It protects loved ones who are not only loved, but also hated. Encouraging a patient to articulate angry feelings toward the therapist is often a useful way of unpacking some of that stored energy that has heretofore only been able to express itself against the self. From this perspective, it is an achievement to be ambivalent, to hate those who are also loved without turning the hatred back on oneself. Other therapists were not satisfied to see either desire or destruction as primary. They focused on the underlying feelings of emptiness instead. They saw these feelings as internalized remnants of deficiencies and adequate attention, signs of an absence in early life where there should have been a presence. A good enough parent is able to hold a child empathetically, helping them to be comfortable with themselves and their feelings and to trust in a nurturing relationship that is there to back the child up. This is the heart of what has become known in the field as attachment theory. When parents are too intrusive, too abandoning, or too chaotic, the theory goes, a child is forced to compensate to the best of the child's ability. This often means the creation of a false or caretaker self 
precociously created by the immature mind to manage an otherwise impossible situation. Beneath this mind object, superficially constructed and often held together by obsessive and overly rigid rituals, lies an emptiness that reflects care that was not given, a void that stands in for a trust that was never really established. All of these theories, so cogent and persuasive, treat underlying feelings of doubts about the self as pathological and seek to explain them by not so obliquely finding someone or something to blame. I have found each of these models helpful in individual cases, but I do not think it necessary to pathologize the entire phenomenon of doubts about the self. Who gets out of their childhood intact? When we presume that a core self exists, we are forced to consider intimations of no self as signs of emotional illness or developmental lapses. An industry has been made out of blaming one's mother for such feelings, as if their very existence is proof of a parent's inadequacy. The Buddhist teachings run counter to this tendency to find fault. He normalized feelings of inadequacy and threw responsibility back onto the individual to sort them out. He taught mindfulness as a method of probing the self and found that impartial attention to moment-to-moment -moment experience yields surprising but predictable insights into the self's contingent and relational nature. These insights, which precipitate spontaneously out of concentrated attention and mindful reflection, make abundantly clear that our habitual efforts to defend ourselves against our intrinsic groundlessness make things even worse. As Samuel Beckett once put it, the ego, minister of dullness, is also an agent of security. If we can assume that the Buddha knew what he was talking about, his insights upend much of the conventional logic that our current models of psychological health are based upon. If inklings of no self are not necessarily signs and symptoms of developmental deficits, but perhaps windows into an underlying truth, how are we to proceed? I have found, far from rejecting the various psychoanalytic theories outlined above, that there's much to recommend them. They chart the perils and pitfalls of what might be called the psychological birth of the individual person and describe the psychic compromises and creative adjustments that our need to individuate entails. In detailing what can go wrong, they describe one end of a spectrum we are all part of, whether we suffer from early relational failures or not. But the Buddhist view is that good enough can never be good enough, that there's always a leftover feeling of something missing, something wrong, something hard to face, or something out of reach, and that this can be beneficial as it prompts a search for the real. Even with good enough upbringing and the consolidation of what might be called a good enough self, according to the Buddha's logic, there will still be disquiet, confusion, and insecurity because we are all instinctively struggling to be something, independent, solid, coherent, and self-sufficient, something we can never be.
even in healthy personality development, we emerge from childhood defending against the underlying truth of how contingent, provisional, and dependent we actually are. The persistence of such feelings, far from being a symptom of parental failures, even if there have been such failures, is actually the seed of wisdom. Fighting against them only rigidifies our defenses and isolates us further. Acknowledging the emptiness that frightens us, whatever its source may be, is the key to a deeper and truer understanding. The emptiness that we fear is not really empty. When it is successfully turned into an object of awareness, it reveals itself to be vast, luminous, and reassuringly, albeit mysteriously, alive. Okay, so that's a lot of text. Um, this next bit is a little shorter and it's also not actually one of the uh, official therapy sessions, but um, it took place uh, during the month of August when uh, uh, most therapists are away on vacation. Um, I was uh, at uh, a place called the Menla Mountain House Retreat Center, which is in Phoenicia, New York. It's a, a retreat center, a Buddhist retreat center run uh, almost single-handedly by uh, uh, Professor Robert Thurman, uh, now emeritus uh, from Columbia University, and his wife, Nena. Uh, and I was uh, teaching a weekend retreat, like a four-day retreat on Buddhist psychology. Uh, with uh, uh, Professor Thurman. So in, in lieu of writing down a case study that week, I wrote down a bit from our time together. And I thought I would read that next. And then maybe we'll take some questions and then maybe uh, I have one or two more things to read, okay? So if you do have questions about anything that I've read or, any, or anything you know, uh, completely uh, personal and different, uh, feel free to uh, to raise your hand. I think there's a, a raise hand thing in the um, in the reactions uh, down at the bottom of your screen. And um, maybe Nico will um, uh, choose a, a, you know, a couple of people to ask their questions. Uh, but anyway, let me read this first. So this is at the Menla Mountain House Retreat Center, uh, August 16th, 2019 at 9 p.m., uh, Phoenicia, New York. I'm teaching a weekend retreat with Professor Robert Thurman of Columbia University called Getting Over Yourself, the Best of Buddhism and Psychotherapy, a version of which we have taught together under various titles for many years. After my overview of the weekend and an introductory meditation in which Professor Thurman leads us, about 75 people, in an elaborate series of visualizations, there's time for questions before heading off to bed. One of the first questions is from a woman who says she is reading a book called Autobiography of a Yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda. Thurman has trouble hearing what, he, what she is saying. His, his hearing aids are not the best. And I repeat the name of the book for him. We are both familiar with it. It was first published in the 1940s, but became very popular in the 60s and 70s. 
It depicts the spiritual adventures of a seeker named Yogananda and is credited with introducing many Westerners to the practice of yoga. The questioner wants to know about the role of the guru. It is a big part of Yogananda's story, and she wonders how important it is for her to find her own guru. A good friend, the person who gave her the book, in fact, has been telling her she needs to find her guru, that she can't proceed on her quest without one. I tell her that Professor Thurman always says that the Tibetans say that the best guru lives three valleys over. You don't want them living too close because then you begin to see all of their flaws. The guru is meant to reflect your own capacity for enlightenment. For those who have trouble believing they are already free, it is easier to imagine that someone else is. As Westerners, however, we have a rather naive view of the guru idea. We tend to think that self-proclaimed gurus are actually perfected beings rather than imagined perfected beings, and we have the inclination to give ourselves over to them without making an accurate assessment of their strengths and weaknesses. Professor Thurman goes in another direction in answer to her question. The word guru, he says, in the original Sanskrit actually means heavy. It has a paternalistic history and connotation. The heaviness sits on your forehead. It's the authority you submit to in the family and in the caste and in the culture. In Tibet, they change the word to Lama, he says, which has more of the meaning of chief or teacher. The real guru, Thurman continues, suddenly becoming very intense, is your own intelligence. He looks at the woman in the audience and repeats the phrase, your own intelligence. In some forms of Buddhism, he explains, they made a new concept called the Kalyanamitra in Sanskrit, which means something like spiritual friend, someone who cares about you enough to guide you in a good direction, someone who is motivated by love. The good guru, Thurman emphasizes, puts the responsibility back on you. If you find one who says, oh, you finally returned, now you're at home, I have it all, this is one-stop shopping, give me everything you have, make sure to leave that guru behind, run for the hills, their agenda is not your agenda. I was glad to have the concept of the spiritual friend raised in this context. I used it at the beginning of the book also to talk about my view of what a spiritual psychotherapist actually is, is like a spiritual friend. Teaching these kinds of workshops is often inv an invitation for precisely the kind of idealization I was warning my questioner about. Therapists are trained to not take their patient's idealization of them too personally. This is where the concept of transference is so very helpful. But even well-trained therapists can find the pressure challenging. Most spiritual teachers have very little understanding of transference, and there have been endless stories during my lifetime of self-proclaimed gurus taking advantage of their credulous Western followers. I found Professor Thurman's comments very clarifying that we could inspire people to shake off the paternalistic heaviness of the guru concept while encouraging them to believe in their own intelligence seemed like a real contribution. Okay, so I think we have enough time for me to read you this one last thing. 
So this is an actual patient session. So from the early part of the book, the patient's name, uh, the patient's pseudonym anyway is Opal. And this session took place on December 12th, 2018 at 11 in the morning. I don't understand why they don't hold her accountable, Opal says of her two grown stepchildren. Why don't those girls hold their mother responsible for all the pain she has caused them? Opal has been married to their father for more than 20 years and has seen the two girls through their tumultuous adolescence and into their adulthood. They were recently home for a Thanksgiving dinner and were splitting time between their father's and mother's houses. Opal has never felt welcomed by them or appreciated by them, even though she has provided the love and stability their father had never known in his first marriage. Opal lived through her husband's divorce and was witness to all of the destruction his ex-wife had brought upon the family. They just have a blind acceptance of her, she laments. I don't know why. You do know why, I contend. She's their mother. It's primal. I explained to Opal what another patient has told me. This patient is a child psychiatrist who works with abused kids and their foster families. Those children cling to the biological parents the harder they are abused, she has told me. It's counterintuitive. The state seeks to protect those kids from their parents, to separate them, but the children need them, and we have to figure out a safe way for them to retain contact. These two girls are not going to reject their mother, I tell Opal, and they are not going to privilege you over her, no matter how good you have been for their dad. I have to get rid of my expectations, Opal says, pulling on what she has learned from Buddhism. Your expectations are valid, I retort. You don't have to invalidate them. You just have to know that they are not realistic. There, there is an important pause. I latch on to them too hard, Opal says. It takes me down a bad path. I made a real home here, she says wistfully. It's never acknowledged by the girls. Opal is at an all-important juncture in her spiritual and psychological work. In seeing how she latches on to her expectations too hard, she now has the potential to stop. It's not what she is thinking that matters. It's how she relates to her thoughts that will make all the difference. Then this is the commentary part. This last phrase is one that has been supremely important to me over the years. I have versions of it written down in the backs of inspirational books and in notebooks smuggled into meditation retreats and have repeated it often in my own writings and talks. It is the central lesson of mindfulness because it implicitly addresses the way we cling. For years, when I would hear Joseph Goldstein or Jack Kornfield say something similar, I would run to write it down because it sounded so on point, only to find I had written similar things over and over again years before. Each time I heard it, it seemed so profound. There's so much in life that we cannot control, no matter how hard we try. Circumstances, events, feelings, even our own thoughts. But we can take responsibility for how we relate to what happens. We can grimace with our hands over our ears, or we can lift one hand. By now, this has become a refrain in my mind one that often returns to guide me in my life and in my work with patients. 